Well, it is always a joy for me to open the Word of God, especially with my beloved family in Christ. These have been interesting times we've been living in. And as some of you might know, may you live in interesting times is supposedly an ancient Chinese curse. And speaking of old sayings, here's another one. Hard times don't build character, they reveal it. And wow, have these last few months revealed a lot about the character of much of our nation. I don't know that I've ever seen so much raw emotionalism, so many wild accusations. We need to shut down the economy or else we're all going to die from the COVID. You shouldn't buy those masks, you selfish jerk. The doctors and nurses need them. Everyone better wear a mask or else you're killing grandma. The death rate, it's 5%. No, it's 2%. I meant 1%. Maybe half a percent? Okay, okay, it's at least 0.2%. Do I hear 0.1? Anyone? Anyone? Going once? Going twice? Okay, sold at 0.2%. Or switching topics. The police, oh, they're a bunch of racists, and if you support them, you're a racist too. No, 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 it's all white people who are the racists. So repent of your whiteness, you sinner. On your knees and beg for forgiveness. Maybe do that for the rest of your life. And we'll think about giving you a pat on the head and a merit badge as a certified white ally. And on and on and on. So many times we hear, if you do this, you're bad. And if you don't do this, you're bad. If you speak up, you're bad. And if you stay silent, you're bad. If I accuse you of being a racist and you admit it, well, there you go. And by the way, if you really are a racist, you need to repent because that is a wicked sin. But if you deny it, you have white fragility and you're still a racist. It's a no-win scenario in addition to being a logical train wreck full of uncharitable mind and heart reading. So what are we to do during times like this? Well, as always, we stand on the word of God, amen? Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 5. And I'll also have it up on the screen. As I've looked back over this past year, or the past couple of years, really, at the counseling and the writing and the preaching that I've done, and even at a number of the casual interactions I've had, I'd be hard-pressed to think of a verse that I've cited more often than 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5. And on a practical level, I believe that a solid understanding of this verse and this passage will be of immense benefit to any Christian in his or her everyday life, because it strikes right at the center of our interactions with other people, as well as our consideration of our own motives. It addresses so many of the nonsense accusations from the outside world, and sometimes, sadly, even from within the church some of those accusations that we just talked about. Because at the end of the day, as Christians, we can ultimately have complete confidence in Christ and his word, as well as the Lord's final judgment. If we can remember that, then we'll be on solid ground, whether we're dealing with emotional and unreasonable people or our own far more often emotional and unreasonable and deceitful hearts. Now, whenever we consider a passage of Scripture, it's important to think about the context of that passage. So here, before we read our passage at the start of chapter 4, let's think about what Paul just finished telling us in chapters 1, 2, and 3. I'm going to give you a jet tour summary. Paul has basically said, hey, cut out the division and the factiousness. Stop with the I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, and I am of Cephas or Peter. Instead, remember the gospel. Remember unity. Remember that the wisdom of this world is actually foolishness. And what we really want is God's wisdom of the word. Don't divide into factions because Paul and Apollos and Peter are all co-workers. All of them are working for God's glory and kingdom. They might do things differently. They might do some things together and other things apart. They might even (gasps) disagree from time to time. But at the end of the day, Christians who are truly ministering for God 
will receive heavenly rewards represented by gold and silver and precious stones, while all of the other actions motivated by something other than God, such as selfish motives or pride, as an example, will burn up like wood or hay or straw without any heavenly rewards. And that's ultimately for the Lord to judge, not us. And so don't deceive yourself by thinking you're wise. Don't boast in other men and foster division. Instead, remember Christ and keep him central. So that's the context and the lead-up to our passage in 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 5. Let's read it together, and I'll be reading from the New American Standard Version. 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 5. Let a man regard us in this manner, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. But to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself, for I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. The title of this sermon is The Confident Christian, and we're going to draw out four main points from this passage. Our first point will be the confidence of a lowly slave. Our second point will be the confidence of a trustworthy steward. Our third point will be the confidence of a clear conscience. And our fourth point will be the confidence of a final judgment. So let's look at our first point, the confidence of a lowly slave, in the first half of verse 1. After three chapters of talking about avoiding divisions and factions, and instead keeping our minds fixed on the things above, like heavenly rewards in the gospel, Paul brings it back to how he wants the Corinthians to view people like himself. Let a man regard us in this manner, he says. And this is reinforced by the fact that we can simply read ahead to verse 6, where Paul plainly tells us what he's doing in our passage this morning. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. Paul is saying, look, don't divide into factions. Don't get all wrapped up in what other people are doing or thinking. Your leaders aren't doing that, so you're not getting it from them. The word of God doesn't say to do that, so you're not getting it from there either. Instead, don't exceed what is written in the word. Don't add a bunch of man-made rules and loyalties toward men into the mix. Verse 6 here explicitly says to go ahead and apply this passage to Paul and Apollos. And if they lead by example, and if the congregation remembers the word of God, then everyone can avoid arrogance and pride, which is such a key sin associated with division and factionalism and strife. How does Paul tell us to do this in the first part of verse 1? Well, right after, right after he says, let a man regard us in this manner, or to look at us this way, in other words, he gets to the key concept in point one. It's the antidote to pride, which is humility. He says, as servants of Christ. The word for servant here in the Greek is huperetes, and it's such a rich word, far richer than servant in the English language, so much so that I feel compelled to go into it with you. The connotation of this word in the Greek is that of a third-level under rower, a lower deck galley slave. Pastor John loves the word picture of this Greek term, so you may have heard this before. But it's really intended to convey the, most, the lowest and most menial slave. One writer describes it as follows. It is difficult to imagine conditions worse than those on board. A shackle kept him tied to his seat where he ate, slept, and went to the bathroom. He was barefoot and his head was shaved to prevent the accumulation of lice and to make identifying him easier in case he escaped. Nothing more lay ahead for a slave than the sea, battles with boats, 
and the very real option of ending up at the bottom of the Mediterranean, trapped in their rocking prison. It's sometimes said that you could recognize a galley by the smell that preceded it. That's how horrific life was for any galley slave. But for the under rower, for the third level galley slave at the bottom, life was especially grim. These slaves would tend to have the most brutal conditions, bear the heaviest loads, and be the first to drown in the event of damage to the ship or other problems. I mean, it's possible that an overseer might have mercy on the higher-level galley slaves by quickly unchaining them before abandoning ship himself, but an overseer wouldn't stick around to help the lowest-level galley slaves because he'd already be making for the upper decks to save himself at the sight of any real trouble. It was utterly miserable. But that's exactly how Paul describes leaders like himself and Apollos. And this is right in line with how Jesus himself describes the role of a spiritual leader in Matthew 20, verses 25 through 28. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your servant slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know, in well-taught Bible churches, sweet congregations tend to esteem and honor their leaders because that's what they're called to do in places like Hebrews 13 and 1 Thessalonians 5.12 and 1 Timothy 5.17. But the flip side of that is, The leaders cannot let that go to their heads. They cannot allow themselves to get puffed up or to lord it over the flock. They need to remember, we need to remember, I need to remember that every Christian leader, even like Paul and Apollos, is just a third-level under-rower for Christ. And even though, again, the reference here is to leaders like Paul and Apollos, All throughout the New Testament, we have over a hundred references to all ordinary Christians being referred to as slaves of Christ. Pastor John wrote a book called Slave on this very topic and how English language Bibles have tended to use the word servant or bondservant when really the better translation is slave. So that sounds pretty lowly for all of us, right? Our first point is the confidence of a lowly slave, which begs the question, of how does that understanding somehow give us confidence? Well, the answer is that when you truly see yourself as a slave, as the lowest of the low on a human level, as someone with no rights or expectations at all, then you are set free to do whatever you need to do for the sake of the master. If we are truly slaves of Christ, then it shouldn't matter if we're shackled to an oar, living in our own waste and refuse, being screamed at and whipped by the overseer at constant risk of disease and drowning. We're right where God has ordained us to be, considering our trials to be joy, as it says in James chapter 1, verse 2, and serving the Lord even as we labor in chains. This is such a foreign concept to us, to many of us in our lavish American luxury with our rights and demands and first world problems. But I promise you that people in Paul's day would have gotten it. Let's try to put ourselves in their shoes, even if only for a bit. But there is a confidence that comes along with knowing that this world is the worst it's ever going to be for us as believers. That all of the persecution we might suffer from unbelievers is but a momentary light affliction. And that we neither expect nor deserve anything more. And maybe they'll even kill our bodies but they cannot kill our souls, which are predestined to an eternity in heaven in the presence of our precious and beloved Savior. There is a confidence that comes along with knowing that even when we do something good, our attitude is the exact same lowly humility. We are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done, as it says in Luke 17, 10. Of course, again, 
The reality for us today is that all of us have it far better than the third-level under-rower of Paul's day. Let's take that blessing and rejoice and give thanks to the Lord for His grace and mercy and not let it lull us into a sense of complacency or laziness. Our second point is the confidence of a trustworthy steward. Let's read the second half of verse 1 and verse 2. As servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God, in this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. We just covered what servants of Christ means. Now let's focus on what it means to be a steward. A steward is someone employed as the manager of a typically large or important household. Sometimes the steward would be a free man. Sometimes he would be a slave of the household. But either way, the steward was entrusted with great responsibility. And that's exactly the dynamic at play in this verse. Paul is referring to stewards of the mysteries of God, which was pretty universally acknowledged by translators and commentators to mean stewards of the gospel. And to be entrusted with the gospel is indeed being entrusted with great responsibility. So much so that Paul tells us that it is required of stewards to be trustworthy with the gospel. So what does that mean to be trustworthy with the gospel? Well, there are two connotations that we could take from that statement, and I think both are important. First, we need to be trustworthy in terms of actually knowing what the gospel is. Beloved, this is the importance of good doctrine. There are all kinds of Christian cults who just butcher the gospel. They turn it into works righteousness or health, wealth, prosperity, heresy, or a negation of either Christ's humanity or Christ's deity, or a denial of the crucifixion or the resurrection. We need to make sure we get it right. If there is truly salvation in no one else, if there is truly no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved, as it says in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, then as stewards of the gospel, of the only way of salvation, it becomes a moral and an ethical imperative for us to be faithful and trustworthy in knowing that way. We need to know it and understand it fully. And later on in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4, Paul even summarizes the precious gospel. I actually preached on this passage back a couple of Resurrection Sundays ago in our Cornerstone Fellowship Group. But this is such a beautiful passage. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. This is such a simple, helpful description of the Gospel, but it also contains so much richness. I drew on these verses to come up with at least seven facts of the Gospel. Jesus is God. He died for our sins as a substitutionary atonement. He died for our sins as a particular redemption. He was a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. He is also fully man. He was resurrected, showing his victory over sin and death, and that resurrection was also foretold. These are the mysteries of God that Paul talks about, and the reason we emphasize it so much at our church, the reason we ask everyone who wants to become a member here, to please explain the gospel in their written applications. The reason I ask everyone to do a membership interview with, to please articulate the gospel to me in their own words, is because it is precisely that important. And when I do these interviews, I'm happy to report that most of the time, people just nail it. It's a joy for me. Sometimes people can give me a relatively rote version of the gospel that they've memorized, but Maybe they're not quite as solid on the particulars or on having a casual conversation about what it all means. And occasionally people are just a little shaky on it in general. Beloved, if you think you might be in one of those latter categories, I charge you, I exhort you, I implore you, please take some time to read and study and understand the gospel. It is so important. I beg of you to please take the rest of July even and make sure you can share the gospel toward an unbeliever and have a conversation about what it means. 
Humble yourself if you have to. People will not look down on you for this. They will admire you for prioritizing this. Practice with with your spouse, with your friends, with your Bible study. So many people would be happy to do this with you. And the reason it is so important is because I mentioned there are two connotations about what it means to be trustworthy with the gospel as a steward. The first is to be faithful in knowing and understanding it. And the second is to be faithful in proclaiming it. Inviting people to church to hear the gospel is all well and good. Nothing wrong with that at all. That's great. It's better than no invitation at all. But evangelism is not just reserved for some priestly class. It's not just for pastors and elders. It's for all Christians. We see this throughout Scripture. But 2 Corinthians 5, verses 18 through 20, specifically declares every professing Christian to be an ambassador for Christ, charged with the ministry of reconciliation. And in order to do that, you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit and able to articulate how man can be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. This does not require you to be an expert in theology. The gospel is deep enough for a lifetime, yes, but also so simple that even a child can understand and share it. I'm continually, ama- I'm, I'm, the, I'm the father of uh, an almost five-year-old and, and two other younger children, and I'm just always continually amazed by how much my oldest daughter is able to understand and share the gospel even. She, she, I, just, I just love, and I promise I'm not saying this to boast, I hope it'll be an encouragement to you, but you know, she just loves asking strangers, do you love Jesus? And I just, my heart just fills with joy when I hear her ask that. If you take the time to know and understand the gospel, your confidence as a Christian will inevitably increase because the pure milk of the gospel is what helps us to grow spiritually, even when we're newborn babes and infants in the faith. Having the knowledge to always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you is fundamentally reassuring and comforting, and you will increase in confidence. I mean, haven't we all hoped and prayed at some point in our lives for someone to ask us that perfect layup of an evangelism question? Han, what must I do to be saved? Is it just me? It hasn't happened to me yet, but I do pray that that day does come. Well, if someone ever does ask us that question, we need to be grounded enough in the truth of the gospel that we can give a confident answer. This is what you must do to be saved. And not just fumble through some Christianese before saying, hey, why don't you come with me to church this Sunday so my pastor can explain it to you? Because they may not want to do that. And that brings me to another way that we can have the confidence of a trustworthy steward. I think just about anyone who's done enough evangelism could tell you, the more that you evangelize, the more confident you become in evangelizing. Let me ask you a question just by a show of hands. How many of you have ever gone either street evangelizing or door-to-door evangelizing? Raise your hands. A lot, a number of you, a lot of you, that's great. If you've never done that before, I'd like to highly encourage you, please give it a try sometime. We have groups through local outreach that go out often on Sundays to knock on doors in our neighborhood. We have people in our church who regularly go out to places like Universal City Walk or the Americana or Metro Stops to share the good news. Now, I get it. To be very clear, you might feel incredibly awkward and outside of your comfort zone. But you know what? God often uses situations like that to stretch you, to grow you. And even if you ultimately conclude that perhaps this type of ministry isn't going to be your own special area of emphasis, and I get that, you will at least prayerfully come away with a greater understanding of yourself and the Lord, an increased appreciation for evangelists and missionaries, a deeper love for the lost, a growth in critically important skills for any believer, And I honestly believe a greater confidence as both a trustworthy steward of the gospel and as a Christian. Let's move on. Just to recap, our first point was the confidence of a lowly slave. Our second point was the confidence of a trustworthy steward. Now our third point is the confidence of a clear conscience. Let's read verse 3 in the first half of verse 4. 
But to me, it is a very small thing that I be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself, for I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. As a reminder, Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, which was beset by numerous problems. That's a little bit of an understatement, right? And most of these problems were of the Corinthians' own making. And one major problem was the factionalism and the division we've already talked about. And part of that even involved accusations that people were making against Paul. So right on the heels of talking about the importance of being a trustworthy steward of the mysteries of the gospel, Paul says that to him, it would be a very small thing to be examined by the Corinthians or even by any human court. What does he mean by this? Well, I can tell you that for Christians, and in particular when we consider a Christian leader like the Apostle Paul, The reality is that all kinds of people are going to be watching. Believers will be watching, and unbelievers will be watching. And in our current day and age, it looks like we're going to be subject to increasing criticism from all directions. From some other professing professing Christians, we might even hear things like, Oh, you're such a misogynist. I can't believe you think that women can't be elders. Or, wow, you practice church discipline? That's so harsh and unloving assuming they would even know what church discipline is. Wait, wait, wait. What do you mean that you have biblical sexual ethics that Christians have followed for 2,000 years? That's not progressive. How are you ever going to reach out to the millennials? These are the types of things we might hear from other professing believers. And from the world, it's even worse. As you may have heard, it has already gotten to the point of being examined in human courts for some Christian bakers and business owners. And particularly for us here in California, I imagine it will only become more difficult. In the last few months, we've seen cancel culture growing to an extreme. People saying the wrong thing or even refusing to say the thing the world wants you to say, and you could lose your job and become a target of hatred in the eyes of much of the secular world. Right now, it's the ability for some Christians to earn a living in their chosen profession. But in the not-too-distant future, we might even be talking about actual imprisonment. We're seeing some of that now, honestly. Police officers being charged with murder for shooting someone in self-defense. Women being brought up on charges or at a minimum mocked and vilified by multitude as Karens for daring to call the police for something. Or people being expelled from schools for wrong think. Or a stray so-called microaggression. It's already moving in this direction of criminal prosecution in other countries in the West. And even with the protections of the First Amendment here in the United States, all it would take are a few court decisions the wrong way, and we could really be at that point too, potentially, in the future. But in spite of all of that, Paul says it's a very small thing for him to him to be examined and judged by others. How can that be? Well, remember, going back to our first point, if we have the confidence of a lowly slave, we know that even with all of the hardship, we can endure and even have joy. And if this is what the Lord ordains, then so be it. But God also allows us the immense privilege of being used as his instruments. And so just because we trust in what he sovereignly ordains, that doesn't mean that we are passive fatalists who just sit there in the train tracks waiting to get run over. It would be like saying, well, God has already chosen every single believer since before the foundation of the world, so I guess I don't have to evangelize. No, 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 because we are commanded to evangelize. And moreover, John 15 calls us all to bear fruit, even much fruit. And all through Scripture, we see how we're to be at the task of kingdom work. And part of that kingdom work is evangelism, and part of it is providing for other believers and being a good witness by showing how much we Christians love one another, which is right in keeping with Galatians 6.10, which says, So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. 
That's such a key verse. This is such a key concept in Scripture that we show our love to one another and toward one another as a sign for the outside world. I feel like so many Christians in the church are trying to bend over backwards to please the world when that is not the case in what we are to do. We are to love especially to those who are of the household of faith, as it says in Galatians 6.10. And so we can simultaneously prepare for hardship and accept it joyfully when it comes even while we also use, for example, our privileges of citizenship, just like Paul did as a Roman citizen, by the way, for the sake of being able to proclaim the gospel without hindrance or restriction and to protect and care for the household of faith as another example. Again, Galatians 6.10 would say that we owe them a special and heightened duty of love and care. Now, as we continue in this section, Paul says something very interesting. He says, in fact... I do not even examine myself. This is fascinating because I think Paul's example here is so incredibly helpful to us in our often highly self-absorbed society. When everything around us is pushing us to glorify ourselves, to elevate our self-esteem, to have it our way, to follow our hearts, to do whatever we want to do, to do what feels good, we tend to drift inevitably toward narcissism. Everything becomes about us, how it affects us, what it means to us, and our gaze and our focus increasingly turn inward. So we navel-gaze, and we start to hyper-analyze everything. And even though we might mean well, perhaps we think we're being introspective for the purpose of spiritual growth, sometimes we might think that, The danger is that we sometimes start to obsess over our own actions and motives and really just about anything of spiritual significance. Paul does not do that. The Greek word for examine here is incredibly revealing. It conveys a sense of an extremely intense and vigorous investigation from top to bottom. Another term would be examination by torture. That's what this Greek word conveys doesn't sound very pleasant, does it? That's what Paul says not to, that he is not doing. And yet, how many of us have exactly that tendency when it comes to our own hearts and motives? Now, you're all very well taught, and so I know what some of you might be thinking. But Han, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13.5 that we should be examining ourselves to see whether we're in the faith. Yes, he does. But there are two important distinctions here. First, the Greek word for examine in 2 Corinthians 13.5 is completely different. It's simply to test or make proof of. And it's also used, that same test or make proof of is used in 1 Corinthians 11.28 where believers are commanded to examine themselves before taking communion, which is a sobering and spiritually beneficial practice for sure. But these Greek uses lack the intense examination by torture meaning that we see in our passage today that Paul says not to do, that he does not do. So that's one point of distinction. But the second point of distinction is that the the challenge to examine and test yourself that Paul makes in 2 Corinthians 13.5 comes right on the heels of Paul describing people led astray by false teachers and doubting Paul and the other true apostles and teachers, people who are in unrepentant sin for impurity and sexual immorality and sensuality and even within the church discipline process. So in contexts like those, of course, it is especially appropriate and important to examine yourselves. Even though we could certainly see this as an open call and command to all Christians as well. But coming back to today's verse, Paul is saying that even in the midst of factions and accusations, he doesn't generally subject himself to an examination by torture. And so perhaps you might want to keep, consider keeping that in mind if you're someone who's prone to agonizing over whether you possibly could have been maybe a little bit more kind or a little bit more generous or a little more diligent at various points in your life. Now, if your biblically informed conscience convicts you, then repent. If you're in unrepentant sin or starting to follow after false teachers, then definitely repent. Otherwise, maybe, ju- just maybe, It's time to get over yourself and get back to work for the kingdom. Because in all likelihood, 
spending a ton of time navel-gazing isn't going to honor the Lord. And more than that, it isn't even going to be helpful to you most of the time. What invariably will help anyone who is in Christ, far more than looking inward and focusing on yourself, is to look upward and to focus on our precious Savior, who is the source of our ultimate hope and the only reason we might be able to accomplish anything on this earth that might possibly honor God. And on that note, I have to add one last thing on the topic of assurance of salvation. I know some of you in a room this size struggle with assurance, with whether or not you're really saved. And I have so much love and compassion and care for you. I do. And I'm, and I'm here for you if you ever want to talk about it. But I would urge you to follow Paul as he follows Christ here and try not to torture yourself with self-examination. Because the question is not, do you love God enough? Because none of us do. The question is not, do you trust God enough? Because none of us do. The question is, do you love Jesus at all? Do you trust in his promises? If so, then rest in that. Because it is the objective work of Jesus Christ on the cross that has bought our salvation, that has accomplished our righteousness. And that work has already been done by the only person who ever could have done it. And that ain't us, y'all. Of course you are not sanctified enough because you're still trapped in this accursed, sinful flesh. But when Jesus said, it is finished, you can believe that. You can trust in that. And if you have even a tiny mustard seed of faith, though your flesh and your heart may fail, and they will, God will still be the strength of your heart and your portion forever. And if you can grasp this truth, really grab hold of it, then I earnestly pray that confidence and assurance will follow. Just listen to the Apostle John drive home this concept in 1 John 3, verses 19 through 21. We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him in whatever our heart condemns us. For God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. There's that word again, confidence. But there's another reason Paul says that all of this examination is a very small thing. And that's because as this section continues, he writes, For I am conscious of nothing against myself. Some other translations use the term, my conscience is clear. And indeed, Paul talks numerous times elsewhere in Scripture about his clear conscience or his good conscience. Now, because we have a bit more time in this Sundays in July format, we're going to take a moment to go through these references because the concept is so important, especially during our current era of wild accusations about our supposed innermost thoughts and motives. First, let's consider Acts 24.16. In view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience before both, both before God and before men. In this verse, Paul talks about always maintaining a blameless conscience. This is his active striving always. And apparently he's actually succeeded at doing so at various points in time throughout his Christian life. This is an important reality to consider. It isn't some prideful or impossible thing to maintain a clear conscience. Here, Paul clearly says that he's innocent of the law-breaking that the Jews have accused him of. So you can have a clear conscience about certain events or even accusations. But Paul goes even further in Acts 23, verse 1. Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. Wow! 
He's lived his life up to that very day with a perfectly good conscience. Even for a super saint like Paul, that just sounds incredible. And yet in Christ, this thing was possible. Indeed, it's only with the perfect sacrifice of Christ, paying for all of our sins and mistakes, past, present, and future, that we could even think of such a thing, having a clear conscience for your whole life. That's what happens at salvation. We are washed clean. And after that, of course, we still sin. We're trapped in this sinful flesh. But when that happens, we need to heed our conscience and not sear it and repent when we sin. And if we do that, perhaps we can even be like Paul. Perhaps we can follow him as he follows Christ in his perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. So those two references, I want to note, even though they were about Paul, were actually related to us by Luke, the author of the book of Acts. Now let's look at Peter, because he talks about a clear conscience as well. 1 Peter 3.16 says, And keep a good conscience, so that in the thing which you are, in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. So again, we see the importance of the conscience coming to the forefront when faced with false accusations and slander. And if we do this, if we suffer for righteousness' sake, we can put to shame those who would revile us for our good behavior. So again, not only possible to do, but important to do. And now let's look at several references by Paul to a clear or good conscience. There's 1 Timothy 1.5. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Here we see Paul speaking about how one of our goals should be to have a good conscience in the area of loving instruction. I'd say that we need to really believe what we're teaching. We need to really be reaching teaching out of love and not some other motivation. And again, as a goal, this is legitimate, it is possible, and it is desirable. Later in that same chapter, we have 1 Timothy 1.19 keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. This is a good conscience as it pertains to apostasy and blasphemy. And Paul is charging Timothy, his young protege, to remain faithful in that regard. So that's another way in which we can maintain a clear conscience, persevering in the faith. And Paul repeats this concept in 1 Timothy 3, 9. But holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Again, we see this concept of faithful perseverance, of holding to the mystery of the faith with genuineness and a clear conscience. In a related vein, Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.3, I thank God, whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day. So we just saw how there's a good conscience relating to faithfulness and not falling away. And now we see that you can have a clear conscience as a Christian in serving God. Here, Paul is talking about constant prayer for beloved saints. The writer of Hebrews says something similar in Hebrews 13, 18. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience, desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. For we are sure that we have a good conscience. Again, there is this confidence in that good conscience. He says he is sure of it. And again, he is sure of his good conscience as it pertains to honorable conduct, as it pertains to good works. This idea of serving God faithfully with those good works and with a good conscience. Let's go over two last verses on this topic, and I believe these are especially relevant to our current times. There's Romans 9, verses 1 and 2. I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Paul here talks about his love for his own people, the Jewish people, and how his own conscience testifies to his great sorrow and unceasing grief for them. Why such grief? Well, let me tell you, it's not because the Jews have been horribly oppressed by the Romans, even though they were. It's not because the Jews have been the victims of injustice, even though they were. No, beloved. Paul's great grief for his people 
that even his own conscience testified as true is because so many of them were unsaved. That is Paul's priority. That is what grieves him the most. His people's spiritual condition and not their earthly condition, and that is what his conscience truly testifies. Do you think that one might be a little bit relevant to our talk today? In all around us in the society? And even in the church? Last verse on this topic. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 12. For our proud confidence is this. The testimony of our conscience that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. In this verse, Paul talks about his own proud confidence. Such an interesting juxtaposition of words, yes? His own proud confidence that he can proclaim the testimony of his conscience that he has conducted himself honorably toward this specific people group, the Corinthians. Again, that is not presumptuous. That is not impossible. That is not arrogance. It is eminently possible for Christians to have a clear conscience toward people groups. Wow. Maybe someone ought to let the leftist so-called anti-racists know. Tell the media. Send the Black Lives Matter organization a memo. See, in all these verses, and getting back to our main passage, what Paul is saying is that he has searched his own conscience, which has been informed by the word of God. And the Corinthians and the outside world really do not have anything on him. The accusations of factionalism or divisiveness against Paul could not stick because Paul knew that was not his motive. He was not trying to rally people to his own personality or cause. He was simply taking a stand on the word of God. Similarly, human courts might declare him to be inciting rebellion, but Paul was not doing that. In that case, it was the Jews who were falsely accusing him. Now, a human court might rightly accuse Paul of refusing to worship the emperor, but even if that might have violated the law of Rome, Acts 29 is crystal clear. We must obey God rather than men. Do you think that verse might have some relevance to us in the current context and moving forward in the future? Paul knew that worshiping anyone other than our God, our true God, would be a horrific sin. So a court could indeed convict Paul of the earthly crime of not worshiping the emperor, but that would be a privilege to suffer for righteousness' sake. I think you can see how having a clear conscience in matters like these would give you confidence. Just to share a personal word with you, Ever since becoming an elder about six years ago, I've occasionally said some things and even made some decisions that haven't exactly thrilled everyone. A few of those people accused me of having bad motives or acting wrongly. One person even made some completely outlandish accusations that he couldn't possibly have any basis for. And at the end of the day, all I could tell them was, I am conscious of nothing against myself. I've searched my heart and I honestly don't believe I had those bad motives. And I really did not do those things that you're accusing me of. My conscience is clear on these matters. And I can still look you in the eye and tell you that I love you despite the fact that you might disagree with me. Despite the fact that you might even be really mad at me. Despite the fact that in some cases I might really be grieving inside deeply over your clear and unrepentant sin which is what we elders sometimes have to talk about in terms of church discipline. And if you're still not satisfied with any of that, I am a man under authority myself, and so you're welcome to take up anything you want with the chairman of our elder board. And I know he will tell me if I got something wrong. That last concept is important because Paul talks about this next. He says in our verse, Yet I am not by this acquitted. Just because a Christian's conscience might be clear, that doesn't mean that he's necessarily right or righteous. 
he might be missing important facts. His Jeremiah 17.9 heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick, so he might not be discerning his own motives correctly. His conscience might not be properly informed by Scripture, or he might even be misapplying Scripture. He might have just totally blown it in some other way completely. These realities are so important to remember, both as a guard against the prideful poison of self-righteousness, and also as a reminder to remain humble and easy to entreat, as it says in some translations of James 3.17. Ultimately, we're all going to be limited by our own human fallibility and lack of perfect information and perfect judgment. And sometimes the Lord will reveal important information to us later. Sometimes the Holy Spirit will convict us on something even years later. And we'll realize like a thunderbolt that maybe our motives weren't so pure after all. And sometimes vindication and the real truth will have to wait until glory. And that leads us to our fourth and final point, the confidence of a final judgment. Let's read the last half of verse 4 and verse 5. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore do not go on passing judgment before the time But wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Paul just finished talking about the importance of maintaining a clear conscience and how he's not necessarily going to agonize over what other people are thinking or judging about him. This fourth point from our passage essentially applies the golden rule from Luke 6.31, to these same concepts. Treat others the same way you would want them to treat you. Think about it. How many times have you wished and prayed that other people would view you based on your actual motives rather than what they perceive your motives to be? Wow, I can't believe you would think that of me. I mean, you want others to give you the benefit of the doubt, and I get that. But then we also need to give others the benefit of the same benefit of the doubt. We know this from the golden rule, but we also know it from John 13:34. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Believers are commanded to love one another. And part of the definition of love from 1 Corinthians 13:7 is that it bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Believes all things, hopes all things. What that means is to believe the best of others, to believe the best of their motives. It's crystal clear in Scripture. So why is that so hard for us to do? Well, the simple answer is that it's often our pride. We think we know the hearts of others better than, they do, better than they do sometimes. Even to the point sometimes where we might reject another person's plain declaration of his or her motives. Instead, we might assume that they're lying or self-deceived. And sure, technically, it's possible that they might be. But most of the time, even as I talk about thinking we know others' hearts better than they do, doesn't that sound kind of, well arrogant. We might think we're so good at detecting lies, and maybe we are, with our own young children, perhaps. But for other adults, they've done studies, and the base accuracy for people detecting lies in other adults is a flat 50%. And maybe someone could train rigorously and do better than that by 5, 10, 15, 20%. But only one person out of 400 can get even up to 80% accuracy and no one gets it right all the time in terms of detecting when another person is lying. With such a high failure rate, are you really willing to trash a friendship on the basis of your gut? So that's one reason possibly is pride. But maybe it's not pride. Maybe this tendency springs from a desire to protect ourselves from hurt or heartache or vulnerability. 
But the word of God calls us to keep fervent in our love for one another in 1 Peter 4, 8. And John 15, 13 tells us that the greatest love is sacrificial, a love that lays down even our own lives for our friends. So maybe we can make that sacrifice and risk that vulnerability. And maybe it's not pride or maybe it's not a kind of concern for vulnerability. Sometimes this tendency to not believe the best of others might even be based on a sad pattern of very real disappointment. Of constantly being let down. But the word of God calls us to forgive 70 times 7 times in Matthew 18:22. Whatever the reason is, regardless of the reason, our passage gives us an additional reason for confidence in believing the best of others' motives. And that's because we know there will be a final judgment before an all-knowing and perfect God. We see it right there. The one who examines Paul and everyone is the Lord. And because the Lord will have his final judgment, we're set free from having to pass judgment now on others' internal motives. In fact, we're commanded not to pass judgment on things hidden in the darkness, on the motives of men's hearts. This freedom liberates us from any felt need we might have to police the motives of others. I mentioned at the start that this verse has come up so often for me in counseling and teaching and writing. The reason is that in human interactions, the practical reality is that we judge others' motives all the time. I've talked and written about this concept of microaggressions before. Oh, you called me Oriental? You must be a racist. You didn't vote for Obama? You must be a super racist. You confused me with a different Asian guy? You've got to be the worst racist in the history of all racism. You know what I'm talking about. Again, we're seeing it more and more around us these days, all the time. But why jump to the worst assumptions like that? Maybe the brother doesn't listen to a lot of media, and so he missed the memo that the preferred term these days is Asian instead of Oriental. Maybe I utterly hate racism, and I do, but I just couldn't get comfortable in my conscience with voting for someone who thinks murdering the unborn is a constitutional right. And you know what? Maybe the guy really does think that I look like Abner Chow. I do get that quite a bit, by the way, maybe once a month. <laughs> Professor Chow, Professor Chow, I loved your class. We were in class together, and you, you did, maybe there's a little bit of a difference, but okay, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> Professor Chow, that was such a great tour through the entire Bible in 90 minutes. Sorry, no, not, not that guy. <laughs> Different guy. I mean, I could get all offended and stuff, but you know what? Abner is younger than me, he's godlier than me, he's better looking than me, and he is way, way, way smarter than me. So that, that's, thanks for the compliment. I just feel bad for him, right? <laughs> for Christians, the first question should never be, did he offend you? But rather, did he intend to offend you? And most of the time, the answer is going to be no. I'd venture it's going to be almost always the case. And if you're not sure, you can always ask. You know, I don't know if you were aware of this, but most people don't really use the term oriental anymore. I'm not offended, but I do know some people who actually could be offended by that. What's that person's answer going to be? From a Christian, I'm betting it's, oh, I never knew that. Thank you so much for telling me. And you know what? If instead that person says, yeah, I know, But I hate political correctness, and I love owning the libs, and I don't really care what you think. Well, if that happens, then you've got a shepherding opportunity. (laughs) Let me give you another example. You're walking down Grace Walk and spot an acquaintance, and you see him shoot you a dirty look. What was that? Did I offend him? Is someone gossiping about me? It must be our mutual friend. We just had an argument, and the two of them are so close. That is so inappropriate. Who do I confront first? 
But what if they deny it? Okay, well, then I guess we're on to step two of church discipline. Who am I going to bring with me as a witness? Okay, so maybe that's an exaggeration, but I promise you, if it is, it's only a slight one. 1 Thessalonians 4.11 says, we're to make it our ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to our own business and to work with our hands, which is pretty much the precise opposite of surrounding yourself with drama all the time. Look at our whole passage this morning. That dirty look, if it was even that, is a very small thing. Especially to a lowly slave. To a trustworthy steward with a clear conscience who doesn't have to go on passing judgment but can wait patiently for the Lord's final judgment. And the reality is, it probably was not a dirty look at all. Maybe he just realized that he forgot something at home. Maybe he was just having a moment of indigestion. And if you just can't bear not knowing, then ask. And if you're embarrassed because it might seem too awkward or too small of a thing to bother asking, then that might be a sign that you should just forget about it instead. Remember, Proverbs 19.11 says, A man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and it is his Glory to overlook a transgression. And that, by the way, is an actual, real transgression. How much more should we be able to let a funny look pass us by? Don't assume motives. You can rest easy leaving it to the Lord, leaving it to the Holy Spirit to convict in His perfect timing. And if you really feel compelled to engage for some reason then maybe you could start with asking some reasonable and open-ended questions. Hey, everything good? Are we cool? Rather than, you shot me a dirty look in the grace walk. What did I do? What did you do? Might, might be a little bit difference in tone there. Now, we do need to remember, we've been talking about unknown internal heart motives here. If it's instead clear and obvious sin, then of course, We are called to confront. But if you can't cite the verse that's being violated, if you have to do some mind reading to prove your case, questions and discussion are far better than accusations. Think about this on a church-wide level. Which is the better church? Is it the one where every word and deed is hyper-analyzed for hidden thoughts and motives? with second-guessing and jumping at shadows abounding. I feel like that's the direction some in the church want to go. Not our church, but some in the church nationwide. Or is perhaps the better church the one that takes people at face value? No more than that. The one that actively sees good motives by believing and hoping all things and refuses to see bad motives by bearing and enduring all things. The church that allows perhaps for interaction about actual words and deeds while leaving hidden thoughts and motives to the Lord. I certainly know which local body I would prefer to join, and I'm grateful that's how our local body actually is. Okay, let's look at the end of our passage. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Part of the confidence that comes along with knowing there's a final judgment from the Lord is that we know He will judge perfectly. Remember, in chapter 3, Paul talks about heavenly rewards, gold and silver and precious stones. And that's undoubtedly on his mind in this passage as well when he talks about being examined by the Lord and each man's praise coming to him from God. That's when every good thing you've done in secret out of love for Christ will be rewarded, when every injustice done to you will be repaid. Because Romans 12, 19 says, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. That final judgment is when we yearn for the well-done, good, and faithful servant. And when we remember, it's not all about results. That our hidden motives of the heart do matter. 
I have to imagine and believe that the prophet Jeremiah, who preached faithfully to deaf ears, has received more heavenly rewards than the prophet Jonah, who was dragged kicking and screaming to Nineveh via express fish to preach sullenly and reluctantly only to see the whole city repent. And so for you, dear saint, maybe late at night when you're struggling with a bitter memory or a broken relationship or someone who has assumed the worst of you, or even an injustice done to you for no rational reason you can think of. You can rest peacefully, confidently, by by remembering the fact that a perfect final judgment is coming. And just like you can take confidence from that, you can also take confidence from the rest of this passage by remembering that you are but a lowly slave, that you can actually be a trustworthy steward of the gospel and that one of the most serene places you can ever be is when you've searched your heart and have a clear conscience. Because ultimately, our confidence springs not from ourselves, but from the fact that we have a perfect master who is sovereignly ordaining everything and who has given us his perfect word. And most importantly, the gift of his perfect son who gave his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your perfect word. We thank you for your perfect son. I pray, Lord, that this exposition of the scripture this morning will be of help and benefit to those listening. I pray even as we see an increasingly hostile world all around us, Lord, that we can stand on the word of God with confidence and that we can go forth always maintaining a clear conscience in our dealings with other people, both inside and outside the church. Lord, I do pray just for a special measure of protection and grace on this congregation, Lord, just in every way, spiritually, physically, financially, emotionally, health-wise. We just pray for your help and your intercession, Lord. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.